Hetzel. This is Rogue Talk on 94.3 The Bridge. Your hometown voice. And now your host, Pastor Evan Gigwine. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! I cannot and I will not recant! Greetings and welcome to another edition of Rogue Talk here on 94.3 The Bridge. I'm your host, Pastor Evan Gigline, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church, right here in Rogue River. Can anyone just pick up the Bible and read it and say this is what it means? Or is there a way that one ought to read the Bible so that he or she can understand and get to the heart of what the scriptures are actually talking about is there a process is there a right and wrong way to read the bible we'll be talking about uh, what's called principles of interpretation biblical principles of interpretation so that we might arrive at the correct understanding of holy scripture pastor chris roseborough will be joining us for that i want to remind you that uh, this friday is the season opener for Rogover Chieftain basketball and coverage will be heard right here on 94.3 The Bridge. This Friday, the Chieftains make the trip out to Hidden Valley High School. The girls tip off at 6 o'clock and the boys at 7.30. Again, coverage can be heard right here on 94.3 The Bridge. Listeners to 94.3 The Bridge will recognize the voice of my guest here in this hour of Rogue Talk, Pastor Chris Roseboro, among many other things, being a faithful parish pastor, he's also a, a captain of Pirate Christian Radio at piratechristianradio.com and also host of the uh, daily radio program on that station called Fighting for the Faith. Pastor Roseboro, welcome back to Rogue Talk. Thanks for having me back, Evan. Uh, one of the things I hear all the time is when you have two Christians or two people disagreeing about what the Bible, maybe a particular verse means, uh, person A is saying it means this, person B is saying this, and they and they they contradict. So often I hear the thing said then that well because there's all these different interpretations and we can't agree, um, it, it seems that the Bible is impossible to decrypt and we are just left in the dark we really can't know what the bible truly says how do you respond uh that's absurd <laughs> the reason i say it and i have to kind of put it that way is because the bible actually tells you how to understand it it's it's uh, a quite an easy book to understand granted there are portions of scripture that are complicated but within the, the scriptural text itself are many of the keys that are necessary for uh, you to understand in order to properly get what's going on in the Bible. And so the Bible teaches you how to read it. The Bible teaches you how to understand it. The Bible actually teaches you how to interpret it. And uh, what the Bible teaches in these regards is really not all that hard. In fact, um, most of what you learned in elementary school, all, all the way up from like First grade to fourth grade, um, and you remember when you had to take those reading comprehension bubble tests when you were growing up in elementary school, mm-hmm. and you would be required to read a paragraph or two or maybe a short story, and at the uh, end of it, all you had to do was answer multiple choice questions based upon what you read. 
and he said, and I always used to love those parts of uh, of you know the the standardized test that I had to take when I was in elementary school. But the reason why is because you knew that you were going to absolutely nail that part of the test because. You know, you had you read the story, and then you were asked questions about the story. And if you were unsure what the answer was to the questions, all you had to do was look up and look at the story itself, and you can get the answer. Well, uh, understanding the Bible is much the same way. It just requires some basic reading comprehension and paying attention to what the Scripture teaches you regarding how to properly understand it. Okay, you say that the Bible itself teaches us how to read the Bible. What is that? What are you referring to? Well, let me give you an example, okay? Um, you know, when we, uh, we, when we read the Bible, we come across what seems to be kind of like two conflicting and almost contradictory messages. And uh, one of the messages we hear in the Bible uh, can be summarized as God's law. You, can, you, know, you look at the Ten Commandments, and you hear in the Ten Commandments, do these things. You shall do this, you shall not do that. And so it prescribes and demands particular behaviors from us and, and threatens punishments uh, from God, of all people, if we do not uh, obey these commands. And then at the same time, you also hear in the Bible another message, and that's called the Gospel. And the Gospel tells us that Christ has bled and died for all of our sins and has met all of the demands of the law for us, and that God gives us salvation not by any work that we do or any law that we keep, but he gives it to us simply as a gift by God's mercy and grace. And so these two seem to be in conflict. And so what happens is, is that one of the confusions that is out there as to how to rightly understand God's Word is, the proper, is how to properly understand the law and understand the gospel as they relate to the Christian life. Well, thankfully, the Bible itself teaches us in the book of Galatians as well as in the book of Romans how to properly understand the law and the gospel so that when we read in the Bible God's commands and we read the threats associated with it, we know as Christians how to properly appropriate the law and the gospel so that we don't confuse the two and turn Christianity into something that it isn't. But the reality of the situation is, is that properly distinguishing between the law and the gospel is something that the Bible explicitly teaches us how to do, and, it, that, and by doing that, it tells us how to rightly interpret the Scripture and how to rightly understand it. And as a result of it, if you listen to what the Bible says regarding the law and the gospel and how to rightly understand it, you will understand a large portion of the Bible that remains, well, ununderstandable, or at least no one's able to correctly understand it, um, because they're not rightly listening to what the Bible says as far as how to understand those categories. You said that if um, if we don't understand that, this distinction between law and gospel and reading the Bible, that we have the tendency or the... Um, well, the likelihood of of turning Christianity into something that it isn't. Now, you're a professional sermon reviewer. You've been doing this on your radio program. How long have you been doing the radio program, Fighting for the Faith? Um, uh, we're in our eighth year, so we've completed seven. That, that's fantastic. And and you, you review sermons uh, quite a lot. Um, and for those who, who don't understand the principles that we're talking about today, what do they turn Christianity into? Well, when you, when you mix and confuse and don't rightly uh, handle uh, God's law and gospel, what you end up doing, and this is the, the most predominant thing you end up doing, 
is you turn Christianity into a legalistic religion, which basically says, do these things, apply these principles, and you know, God will bless you, God will save you, and, um, and, and things of that nature. And so it, it utterly confuses the message of the gospel and, um, and doesn't understand salvation by grace through faith. Now, there's another error that, that happens, and those who get burned out trying to please God by the law who never hear the gospel, one of the things they have a tendency to do is overreact in the opposite direction. And so these people, what they do is they basically say, God's law doesn't have any bearing whatsoever in our lives, and so they chuck the law, and they focus in on the gospel, and those people, you can call them, you know, antinomians or gospel reductionists. The only thing that exists is God's love, and there's no wrath or, or you know, judgment of God. And, and the law somehow completely has, like, nothing to say to us whatsoever. Well, that's, that's not rightly handling the biblical text either, because, like I said, the, the biblical text, especially Galatians and Romans, teaches us how to properly understand the law and the gospel and their functions and their limits so that you don't get rid of either of them but hold the two in tension rightly understanding what each of them is doing you say all the time that that uh, the first three rules of, of biblical interpretation are context context and context um, I have found so oftentimes when someone is is saying something and then they have uh, a proof text to say, aha, here's the proof for what I'm saying. So oftentimes the context actually says the opposite of what they're trying to say. Is that what you have found too? Yeah, no. Um, what, what happens is, is that, um, you know, is that people do something really weird um, with, uh, with the Bible. And, and I mean that. It's actually quite fascinatingly strange. Is um, they don't read it like they would a book or a letter or anything like that. For instance, if you were to say, you know, if you were to buy a, you know, a best-selling, you know, paperback book off of Amazon and it arrives at your home, generally what you do with that paperback book is you open it up to page one, and you begin reading, and the story begins to unfold. It, it, it you know, builds, it crescendos, and there's a conclusion, and at the end of it, you you understand the the story in its entire sweep. But what's happened is is that there's a lot of pastors nowadays who I the way, best way I can describe it is is that they're not interested in the story told in scripture, you know, beginning at the end and con, you know, and working all the way to the conclusion. Instead what they're what they're do what they're interested in doing is kind of like um, it's a it's a form of strip mining. You know, you know, where what they're doing is they're washing away all of the parts of scripture that are not some kind of an application and um, and you have no concept then of the story or you know this so-called application that they found about the context around it or anything like that and so you get all of these disconnected sentences without any concept of how they fit in the bible or the stories around them and things like that and a, and a good example of it of uh, this you know where context 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 is like an important rule is that famous verse in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 and Jeremiah 29:11 everybody knows this verse it says this for i know the plans i have for you declares the lord 
plans for your welfare and for and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And you see, you see, a pastor says Jeremiah twenty nine eleven says, "I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord. And say, and so that means that God, He's got plans for your future. He's got plans to give you a hope. He's got plans. Basically, you know, God's up there in heaven conspiring to make you wealthy. God's conspiring to, you know, to give you divine health and, and to put you into a multi-million dollar home and give you a private jet. And see, that's what Jeremiah 29.11 says. And, in, and that's how it's preached. The problem is, is that that's not what Jeremiah 29.11 says at all when you read it naturally. And what I mean by naturally is just read the story, put it back in its context. You know, in what context does the words, I know the plans I have for you, you know, for a few, you know, to give you a future and a hope? Well, when you read the context, you find out that these are words that are not spoken to us. We're actually reading somebody else's mail. This is, these are words that were spoken by God through the prophet Jeremiah to the uh, Israelite, um, uh, uh, those who were in captivity in Babylon. So the survivors of Nebuchadnezzar's sack of Jerusalem were picked up and hauled off to Babylon and were, you know, and they were exiles now. And so God sends word to them to let them know that he loves them, that he still cares for them, and that he has plans for them, and to not despair while they're in exile. And they were put in exile for their persistent sin and refusal to repent and to be forgiven uh, for their idolatry. Uh, and so God punished them. And so the letter is not written to us. In fact, when you read it in context, here's what it says. I'll start at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And he's saying, well, which place is that? The answer is Jerusalem. So, and then he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, and when you seek me with all of your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I'll restore your fortunes, gather you from all the nations and the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so when you put it all back into context, you realize that the context shows us that Jeremiah 29:11 is some is not some blanket promise that God is making to Christians that he wants to make them healthy, wealthy and give them a private jet. No, it's it's a promise, a specific promise given to a specific people at a specific time. So unless you were one of the uh the Israelite Babylonian exiles and I know there's some probably some old people in your audience listening, but I don't think anyone's that old. Uh the promise of Jeremiah 29:11 does not actually specifically apply to you. It tells us something of the nature of God, but it's not a promise given to you, and the context makes that perfectly clear. Okay, so I want you then to um, describe then how uh, uh, Jeremiah 29 would apply to the current, the modern-day hearer, uh, the, the Christian sitting in the pew. If, if, if Jeremiah 29, uh, 11 and following comes up in the lectionary and you're preaching it from the pulpit, um, mm-hmm. how, how does this apply to me today, if not that God has this wonderful plan and I should go get a jet? Um, well, it's real simple. Uh, you, know, you would use another principle, and it's called Scripture interprets Scripture. And Scripture interprets Scripture, when you, under, when you see the context of what's going on here, 
what you're seeing is, is that God is engaging in fatherly discipline of his people. They, they were persisting in sin. They were persisting to refuse to repent. And God disciplined them and caused hardship to fall upon them. And so the idea is, is that, you know, you can go to another passage, like in the book of Hebrews, you know, talking about how, the one, how God disciplines those whom he loves. And this is an example of God's discipline. And despite the fact that they were being disciplined and most severely by God, that ultimately that was not because God hated them. It was because God loved them. It wasn't because God had thrown them aside and had you know, and didn't have any plans for them, it's because specifically he did have plans for them. In fact, ultimately what God was doing was working salvation by continuing to keep a remnant, a believing remnant within Israel. Um, You know, that was an important thing to do because the promise of the Messiah had not been fulfilled, so God was still working ultimately to fulfill his promises. And so if you're going to talk about it in that sense, you can talk about it in the sense of fatherly discipline and love, but it's not, it cannot at all ever really be made to say that uh, what God is really saying there is, is that he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and, and have a private jet. That's, that's completely torturing the text altogether. We're talking with Chris Roseborough about principles of interpretation. We'll be right back. You're listening to Rogue Talk. Don't go away. You're listening to Rogue Talk on 94.3 The Bridge. It's certainly the season for giving, and when you make charitable gifts, you can both give and receive. When you donate to a qualified charity, one that the government has classified as tax-exempt, you'll help it carry out its mission while you earn valuable tax advantages. Specifically, your gift may entitle you to a deduction against your income tax as long as you itemize. If you contribute property you've owned for more than one year, such as stocks or other investments, the value of the deduction is normally equal to the property's fair market value. Plus, you won't have to pay capital gains taxes on any of the appreciation. However you choose to make your gift, be sure to document it. Typically, no deduction is allowed for a contribution of $250 or more unless you have a written confirmation from the charity. You'll need to make your gift by December 31st if you're going to deduct it on your 2015 taxes, so put your generosity to work soon. This is Brian Dorsey, your Edward Jones Financial Advisor, located at 97 Pine Street here in Rogue River, member SIPC. In Grants Pass, Dental Boone's Trading Post has been going strong for 30 years. The owner, Clive Boone, is proud to keep the tradition of the Trading Post alive and well. He picked up the name Dental in grade school in the 1940s. The name has stuck with him to this day, as well as his concept of selling like-new merchandise for half the price of new. His specialty is tools and kitchenware, revereware, waterless, stainless pots and pans, and especially cast ironware, such as Griswold and Wagner, most of which are over. For 50 years old and still like new. Daniel Boone put up a sign in his store that reads, This is not a museum. This junk is for sale. Daniel Boone's Trading Post has hundreds of knives and swords and fair, along with scores of antiques and collectibles. It would be cliche to say there's something for everyone, but then that's what a trading post has always been about and why it's been around for centuries. Daniel Boone's Trading Post, located on the Redwood Highway, across from Wheeler Toyota and Les Schwab. Is there a day that's special to you? Become a day sponsor for 94.3 The Bridge. Day sponsors support the broadcasting efforts of KRRC with a donation of $20. And on the day you select, we announce on the radio why that day is special to you. Is it someone's birthday, anniversary, or any other day that's special to you? 
become a day sponsor, call 541-582-0457 or click one-time donation under the donate tab of 943thebridge.com. Broadcasting on 100,000 milliwatts. Don't try this at home. 94.3 The Bridge, your hometown voice. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Abortion advocates often use twisted logic to justify the killing. Recently, Planned Parenthood posted a tweet that read, Every child deserves the opportunity to live up to their God-given potential. This shows the other side clearly doesn't think things through. An abortionist in Alabama is equally delusional. Willie Parker wrote, Doing abortions fulfills his call to be the Good Samaritan, adding, It is the deepest level of love you can have for another person. Parker calls unborn babies an outbreak, as if they're a disease and not human beings. When asked why he does abortions, his first part of a brief response is, because I can. I believe it's more about money than it is about helping women. Abortion's a cash cow for those who can't make an honest living. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. host of the radio program Fighting for the Faith, and um, t- we're talking about uh, interpreting and understanding the scriptures as the Lord would want us to understand them. Uh, but Chris, before we move on full-fledged to uh, scripture, interpret scripture, I have, I have another question about context, because it seems like there's almost two categories of those who commit this kind of fallacy of, of failing to recognize the context. I mean, there's there's the, I think... The the Christian who has just kind of been, uh, oh, I don't know, ha- has one of those uh, promise Bible verses book and just opens up the page and I'm going to look at promises about uh, God's love. And, and it has, you know, 10 verses about God's love or, you know, just just being a victim of the fact that the scriptures have been uh, put into a versification system. I, I think that this leads us to only look at verses. But there's almost another category, uh, and that is... Um, the, the Christian preacher who starts out by thinking, okay, this is the thing I want to talk about, and now I'm going to do a word search for the, in the Bible and somehow find a verse to help me connect whatever I already want to talk about to some verse. And uh, Pastor Roseboro, I know that on your radio program, you hear the, the wildest connections to verses. Talk about that. Yeah, no, um, you know. <laughs> There's this, oh man, what you're describing <laughs> is called proof texting. That's actually what, there, there's a term for it, and it's, it's a completely awful approach to Scripture. And what you end up doing is imposing your theology or your ideas on Scripture that cannot be legitimately exegeted out of the text. And so what happens is, you're right, the, the, the way the process begins, 
you begin by you know coming up with an idea and my idea is is that god wants everybody in the world to have marshmallows or something right and so then you go out and you find all of the verses that you think could be used to support your thesis that god wants everybody to eat marshmallows i'm using a, a bizarre idea here and then what happens at the end of it is is that you haven't actually understood any of the texts that you've uh, cited uh, properly. Instead, what you've done is you've kind of ripped them out of context and then strung them together, like uh, you know, like pearls on a string, to create a theology. And and the reality is is that you can make the Bible say just about anything you want to using that method. And um, you know, for instance, I you know I I, I could you know the the famous uh, example that people use the, the late Walter Martin used is that you know you can you can make the Bible say that God wants you to harm yourself, and so because there's a Bible verse that says Judas went and hung himself, and then there's another passage you know uh, where it, where in the Gospels it says go thou and do likewise. See, you just put the two verses together, and now you've made the Bible say whatever you want. This is no way of of rightly handling God's word which is why context, context, context is so important. And, um, and kind of connected to that, you know, let me give you a real-world example, is that um, uh, you know, there's a theology uh, today, that, which is actually a heresy, called the Word of Faith heresy. And the Word of Faith, faith heresy teaches us that God apparently um, uh, has set the world up in such a way that you can speak things into existence. Whatever you think in your heart, whatever you believe, that that's, that's what creates reality in your life. It's, it's akin, it's, a, it's akin to um, that uh, book from a few years ago called the, you know, the, the, the message. Uh, or, or the secret. That, I oh think yeah, the secret. Uh-huh. The secret. You know that um, that what happens is is that what you think about, what you um, what you talk about, those are the things that are attracted to you. It's called the law of attraction. So if you want to be wealthy, you need to think about and imagine yourself wealthy. If you and you need to speak words, uh, you know, affirming. That, uh, that you are wealthy, not that you will be. You have to speak about it in the present tense, not in the future. And then what will happen is, is that wealth will then be attracted to you and hunt you down and make you wealthy. And, um, and so, what you, so that, that's a classic example of a bad theology. But what happens is, is that the televangelists, using the, the technique that we've talked about, you, know, you start with this theology, God wants you to be wealthy, your words, your thoughts create reality. Now they go on a hunt to find the Bible text that back this up and they've found one and uh, let me read it for you here it's, it's proverbs 23 verse 7 and let me read it for you out of context from the king james bible here's what it says it says for as a man thinketh in his heart so is he see there you go <laughs> the, the bible right there teaches that if you you know as you think in your heart so are you so that means that if you want to be wealthy you've got to think about wealth and imagine yourself wealthy and then you become wealthy and you sit there and go, what kind of game are you playing? Okay, <laughs> because let me put it back into context, and you'll see that this text is not saying at all, at all, that if you think things in your heart, that that's what will come about, you know, in the reality of your life. And I'm going to do this using a modern translation, not the King James Version. Here's what it says, and I'll start at verse 6, because the context in that proverb begins in verse 6, and here's what it says. Do not eat the bread 
of a man who is stingy do not desire his delicacies. So the context is, you know, you've been invited to dinner at somebody's house and the guy is just uh, completely stingy, is, is not anybody who likes, you know, giving money away. In fact, I mean, if he, if he had it his way, he'd only be eating spam, you know, every day because he, he wants to keep on, you know, hold on to his money. That's the context. So let me read again. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. So that's the context. That's the whole, para- that's the whole proverb, if you would. And so you notice the proverb is not saying, when you read it in the modern translation, you know, the things you think about are the things that you attract to yourself, or as you think in your heart, so is he. Instead, the passage is simply saying, you know, listen, be careful of, you know, of eating uh, at a stingy man's house, because although he says to you, eat and drink, that's not what's really going on. And I'll read it from the King James Version, and you can see the King James makes the same point. I'll start at verse 6. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, and that would be somebody who's stingy. Uh, Neither desire thou his dainty meats, for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he unto thee, but his heart is not with thee. You see, the whole point of the passage is not to teach you that you can create your future, your reality, and be wealthy if you think yourself wealthy in your heart, because that's what you will become. Instead, this is a parable about... Um, it, taking up the offers of somebody who is stingy because even though he's being polite and say, here, eat these things, he really doesn't want you to eat them because with each bite, he's, you know, his, his mind is calculating how much each of those bites is costing him, and he's not happy about it at all. Another uh, important thing to consider when we, when we read the Bible, one that you mentioned a little bit ago, was that Scripture interprets Scripture. And um, I have found that... Um, this this is nowhere on the radar, uh, especially for those kind of liberal Bible scholars. And I think that's because in order to um, practice this tool that, that Scripture interprets Scripture, that you have to believe that the Scriptures are all inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if they're, if they're not, then there's no reason to interpret one book in light of the other. But if the, the Scripture texts is all written by the same author, then this is going to come and have the same point, all of Holy Scripture from beginning to end. Yeah, no, you got to understand, liberal scholars um, do not have any desire whatsoever to do anything that would affirm the inerrancy and authority and inspiration uh, of, uh, of Holy Scripture. You know, they want to tear it down and turn it into... Uh, pretty much uh, just the work of mere men, and um, that they that that means it has like no binding uh, ability to bind their conscience or tell them or inform them what their behavior is going to be. Yet alone, let them know that uh, their actions um, are being watched and will be judged by God. The liberals are all about tearing down that idea and bringing the Bible down to a basic level. But the reality of the situation is, is that the Bible is inerrant. It is inspired. It is, it is 
uh, authoritative and um, and binding, and does have one common author. Now, there's uh, over 40 human authors that God used to write the scriptures, but there's one common author, regardless of uh, the man who wrote the, the you know any one of the texts, and that common author is God, the Holy Spirit. And what we find is this fascinating thing that happens in Scripture, and that is is that the Bible interprets the Bible. And as a result of that, people who teach the uh, the science of hermeneutics and proper biblical exegesis have you know they talk about the importance of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, and they actually have some very interesting rules then regarding. Uh, rightly handling God's word and biblical interpretation. Uh, rule number one in, the, you know, in this series would be the idea that if we're going to draw a Christian doctrine, it has to be it, the, there has to be a primary text, you know, a primary passage that is the is the clearest passage on a bit, on a given topic, and then there's other clear passages that work in conjunction with it, and then what happens is is that. Um, then uh, passages that are topic, uh, talking on the same topic that are not as clear as the clear passages, our understanding of those passages is governed by, um, by the clear passages. And so uh, let me give you an example of this. We've, we've made reference to, um, uh, to the fact that the Scriptures, particularly Galatians and... Um, uh, and uh, Romans teach us how to rightly understand law and gospel, and um, and as a result of that, we understand from the Book of Galatians and we understand from the Book of Romans that nobody is saved by uh, works of the law. This is very clear in Scripture, very clear in Romans, very clear in Galatians. And so let's let's take a look at a text that a lot of people misunderstand because they do not pay attention to the fact that Scripture teaches us how to rightly understand law and gospel. And it's found in Matthew chapter 19. And it's and let me uh, let me read to you, starting at verse 16. And here's what it says: Behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, "Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life?" And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Well, which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All of these I, ke- I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so somebody will read this text and go, Well, look, Jesus is saying you can, you know, that this man could be saved and he would be perfect if he would just go and sell all of his possessions. So the, the Ten Commandments are keepable, and salvation is not by grace. Salvation is by observing and keeping the commandments of God. And so that's how they would argue that, you know, this text. The problem is, is that we have clear passages that says that by works of the law, no one will be saved. No one, not one single person. 
And, you know, and Paul in Romans says, for by works of the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so we have a clear passage in uh, Romans chapter 3 that says, no one will be saved by, uh, you know, by works of the law, no one will be justified or declared righteous before God, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here we have a clear passage in Romans 3 that says it's impossible for someone to be justified before God, and that the purpose of the law is to show someone sin. Well, with that clear passage, we can then rightly understand what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 19. So the, 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 the person who comes to Jesus, the rich young guy, he asks a very bad question. What, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Well, this guy thinks that he can earn his salvation. But Paul says, via the Holy Spirit, by works of the law, no one will be justified before God, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Jesus then starts to use the law to show this guy that he does not keep the law and that he is not good. And he, here's what he says. He says, um, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And then the guy says, well, which ones? So Jesus rattles off a whole list of commandments from the second table of the law that have to do with our relationships with, with, each, with each other. And the young man foolishly says this, all of these I have kept. You know, to which we should all say, really? You have kept the second table of God's law perfectly. And so, you know, and so the guy says, well, what do I still lack? Well, the thing, <laughs> what he still lacks is a proper understanding that he is actually a sinner. So Jesus ramps up the law at this point and says, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And the guy, the guy ends up leaving uh, is sorrowful because he had great possessions. And what Jesus did then is he used the law to show the man that he is not keeping the commandments and that he is, in fact, an idolater, and his idol is money. And that's the point of what Jesus was doing. So Jesus, we now understand through the Apostle Paul's writing in Romans 3, that says, by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We know then how to rightly understand this text so that we don't wrongly uh, uh, understand the text to somehow be teaching that you can be saved by your good works and your law-keeping. Uh, just go and try hard or maybe sell all your possessions and give them to the poor, and then you can be saved by the law. That's not what Jesus was saying. We know because of the uh, other clear passages of what Jesus was doing was using the law to show this man his, his sinfulness and that he is not a law-keeper, that he's a law-breaker, and that he is in need of Jesus and to be forgiven of his sins. One of the examples that I use when talking about this one, uh, that we would understand the unclear passages in light of this, uh, the clear passages, um, is I remember when um, then uh, Bishop of the Episcopal Church, uh, Kathleen Jeffert Shorey, was interviewed on radio program Issues Etc. by Todd Wilkin. And uh, in the interview, she's asserting that there will be other people in heaven other than just Christians. That it's not not those who have faith in Christ and his promises of forgiveness that are in heaven, but um, really kind of just anybody. And, um, and, she, and she quotes uh, where Jesus says, there are other sheep who are not of my fold. And <laughs> here you have, I mean, maybe a, a somewhat obscure passage, and I think that we want to understand that in light of the clear passage where Jesus says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And um, what I found is that when we have the, the 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 biblical approach of the Scripture that says that we interpret the unclear passages in light of the clear passages, what others want to do is actually flip that on its head, and they want to obscure clear passages by using unclear passages. Yes. Let me let me give you another example of that. By the way, the, the text that you were talking about is found in the Gospel of uh, John, chapter 10, uh, where Jesus says, I have, you know, I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. This is one of the quotes that he makes. Um, but, and, and you're right, Catherine Jefford Shorey was totally trying to use that text to somehow negate the fact that, uh, you know, there is no other name given by which men must be saved, and that's Christ. That's a clear passage on that. But, um, the uh, the text that you were referring to, what was it again, real quick, Evan? What were we? What was the second text? Oh, we were it was about? Um, uh, in John's Gospel. Um, uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. Oh yeah, I know what the point I was going to make now. Yeah, yeah, thank thank you. There's another t- there's another way in which somebody makes uh, you know uses unclear passages or off topic uh, passages to somehow negate clear ones, and l- l- we'll use the topic of women's ordination. And so if you talk to somebody who's in favor of women's ordination and, and women being pastors in the church and having the, uh, the authority to preach and teach and administer the sacraments, one of the texts that they t- go to is found in the book of Galatians that says that in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. See? We've got a text of Scripture that says in Christ there is neither male nor female, therefore we can go ahead and ordain women. That's their argument. Well, here's the problem, is that that text in Galatians isn't talking about women's ordination at all. Um, and to use that text to somehow be a, you know, to, as justification for ordaining women, um, it t- basically takes biblical hermeneutics and flips it on its head. So, number one, clear passages always govern, but it has to be, it has to be clear passages on a given topic. So the idea is, is that... Um, clear passage on the given topic of women's ordination makes it clear that a pastor is to be uh, you know, a man, husband of one wife, able to teach. Women are not permitted to, to speak in the church. These are, those are the clear passages. Quoting Paul against Paul using, you know, in Christ there's neither male nor female, uh, you know, quoting that passage against Paul to negate what Paul said regarding the fact that women are not to be uh, pastors um, is is basically you know tantamount to you know committing a crime. It's a hermeneutical crime that you're committing, and it's a form of blasphemy trying to make the Bible say something that it doesn't say. And so the clear passages on the topic of who is to be ordained and what is it, what qualifications must a person have in order to be a pastor, those are the clear passages they govern. You can't misquote or pull out of context, in Christ there is neither male nor female, and use that as a way to negate those, because that passage isn't even talking about ordination. It isn't talking about who is apt to teach in the church and what are the qualifications of a pastor. And so... Uh, you're taking a, not only an unclear passage, you're taking an off-topic passage to try to negate a clear passage. You can't do that. Another important uh, principle uh, to keep in mind as we read the Scriptures is to realize that when God inspired authors, both Old and New Testament, His desire was to reveal Himself, namely uh, His beloved Son in whom He is well pleased, and not 
you. <laughs> Talk about that. Yeah, um, there's there's an interesting thing that uh, that is about scripture, and that is is that it's not about me, and it's not about you. The scriptures are really about Christ. In the Gospel of John, we have the this interesting account where Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees, and he says to them that. Um, that uh, truly, truly, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet they are the very scriptures that testify of me, and you refuse to come to me that you might have life. And that's a fascinating text, and the reason why it's fascinating is because in that text, Jesus is literally saying that the Old Testament scriptures are about him. They testify to him. And then you have the wonderful account in the uh, Gospel of Luke, uh, with uh, the road to Emmaus story, where on the day of the resurrection, uh, uh, Jesus uh, basically comes alongside two of his disciples who are on their way to Emmaus, and um, he does. He their eyes are held so that they cannot uh, they cannot uh, know who it is that they're talking to. And in fact, let me read a portion of this. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, namely that Jesus had raised from the dead. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were held. They were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad, and one of them named Cleopas answered him, well, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and all the people uh, uh, condemned him to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, uh, all of this is, it is now the third day since these things have happened. And moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. And some of those who went with us to the tomb found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And so Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his uh, glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus has this, uh, you know, basically belief that the scriptures are about him. And, you know, here in this gospel text, he walked Cleopas and this other disciple through the text of scripture, showing them how Moses and the prophets had written about him, had prophesied about him, and had, you know, shown that these were the things that were to take place. And so, Jesus himself teaches us that the scriptures are about him. Unfortunately, what happens is is that people approach the scripture and think that it's about you, and they turn the Bible into Aesop's fables. And so you get to the story of David and Goliath, and David you know, picked up his five smooth stones and slayed Goliath, and then what they end up doing is allegorizing the text and making it a parable about your life. So then the question comes out, what is the Goliath in your life that you need to slay? And what are the five stones that you're going to use to slay your Goliaths? 
But the problem is, is that the story of David and Goliath isn't about you slaying your Goliath. Ultimately, the story of David and Goliath is a story that points us to Christ. It, it typologically, in type and shadow, shows us something about what Christ has done for us and is going to do for us. And so when you make the text about yourself and allegorize it and turn it to Esau's fables, you miss the whole point of the passage, and Scripture, and Jesus has told us that the Scriptures are about him. And by missing the whole point, you end up turning the Bible into law, something that you've got to apply, rather than good news, which is gospel, telling us that something is Christ, that Christ has done for us. And so you end up not understanding the Scripture when you start looking for yourself in the Old Testament text, rather than looking for Christ. But if you look for Christ in those Old Testament texts, as Christ has taught us to do, then you will begin to rightly understand what's going on in those texts. Is this what you mean by when you refer on your radio program to narcissus? Yes, it's narcissus. Those are two words stuck together: um, narcissism, which is self-love, and and uh, eisegesis, which is reading things into the biblical text that are not there. So narcissus is the reading uh, of yourself because you love yourself into the biblical text and making you the hero of all the stories, which is no way to understand the scriptures at all, and is a sure formula for uh, landing yourself in the, in the fires of hell. Now, um, you, you mentioned this kind of approach that I think a lot of preachers today are doing, is that they uh, will read a text, like you mentioned David and Goliath, and they, then they allegorize it. Um, again, I want you to explain, just like you did with Jeremiah, how the story of David and Goliath would apply to the Christian um, and how this would still be, I mean, we, we believe that all of Scripture is given for our, for our comfort, even those law passages, because they drive us to the gospel. So how is the story of David and Goliath a comfort to the Christian? Well, he, he, understand this. When we read the stories in the Bible, there's one, there's, uh, there's one thing you have to keep in mind is, you know, the, the answer to the question, why are we hearing stories about these people? Why are we hearing the story about King David? Well, King David is in the genetic line of the Messiah. You know, he's the great, 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 great grandpa of Jesus. And so, and and uh, in Scripture, uh, David is kind of a high watermark, pointing us to uh, the the kingship of Christ, because all of the prophecies regarding the Messiah and specific prophecies given to David is that the Messiah would sit on the throne of his father David forever. And so when we look at the story of David and Goliath, it is the Lord who gave a great victory that day. It is not David who won a great victory that day. In fact, the text makes that very clear. And so if you were to look at it in type and shadow, you could say, in a way, that on the day that David fought Goliath, the Messiah is the one who stepped onto the battlefield. And the Messiah was there by virtue of the fact that he's in the loins of David as the unborn great-great-great-grandson of, of, of David. And so Christ is really the one who's winning the victory that day. So the, the line of the Messiah had come to that point and no further. And, you know, and so the idea then is, is the way the story unfolds is that the Philistines have, have a champion that none of the Israelites is capable of defeating. And yet, this shepherd king, because that's who David was up to that point, he'd already been uh, anointed the king of Israel, this shepherd king with, uh, with a sling is able to defeat the undefeatable giant. 
And that, you can say, typologically is pointing us to what Christ has done for us, because we were powerless against the devil, and Christ steps onto the battlefield. He truly is the shepherd king, and he defeats the devil for us, conquers him and crushes his head, um, you know, through his death and resurrection. So the idea is is that you rightly understand the story of David and Goliath when you stop making yourself the hero and see that Christ truly is the hero, and he's the hero there hidden in type and shadow, but also hidden in the loins of David, who is the shepherd king, um, which is pointing us to Christ, who is in the direct lineage of Christ. That's, that's the right way to understand these things. And finally, Pastor Roseboro, with just about a minute and a half to respond, um, what is the treasure when someone approaches the scriptures with these principles that you've delivered to us today? Um, what is the glorious uh, treasure that they find in the scriptures? If not, this is how I become a better dad. Ah, uh, well, here's here's the amazing thing: is that when you start looking for Jesus in in all of the scriptures and and, and understand it in this way. The Bible begins to come alive, and you begin to see that this is not some human book. There's no way any human being could have put this together because, you know, you know, the, the different authors all, you know, were separated by centuries of time. And you begin to realize that God has literally put into Scripture this amazing message of the good news of what He is doing and has done to save, redeem purchase and deliver us from the dominion of darkness forgive us of our sins and transfer us into the kingdom of light and um, and when you realize the the great lengths and the miraculous ways in which God has done these things for you and for the forgiveness of your sins what is unlocked for you then is is everything because you then have Christ, you have forgiveness, you have God, you have the kingdom, and you have a hope. Um, and you have a certainty with your faith. Whereas if you read yourself into these texts, all you have are principles that you're supposed to uh, you know, apply to your life, and you have no assurance of, of comfort or forgiveness or salvation or a right standing before God, because the law, if you do not keep it, um, always is pointing his bony finger at you and saying, you didn't measure up, you didn't do it, you didn't do it, you didn't do it. The law never gives you good news. It always informs you of what the bad news is. And so by reading yourself into these biblical texts, you're ensuring that you're not going to hear the good news, but it will continue to have a growing sense of doubt as to your right standing before God because you're not measuring up and keeping these things. Chris, it's been a blast. Thanks, for, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, Evan. You can listen to Chris Roseborough on Fighting for the Faith uh, here on 94.3 The Bridge. Weekdays 5 to 6 is when his show is on. Also, check out their brand spanking new website, piratechristian.com. There's a lot of resources on there. Thanks for listening to this edition of Rogue Talk.
listening to Rogue Talk on 94.3 The Bridge. Listen to Rogue Talk with Pastor Evan Gigline weekdays at 7 a.m. and again at 4 p.m. Right here on Rogue River's hometown voice, 94.3 The Bridge.